Good morning, everybody. Welcome, Pradeshini. Welcome to the Abhinavi Club. Thank you. Uh, you know, I've been uh, looking towards this shoot for almost, uh, I think, four weeks now. I've been trying to get a journalist on this, you know, for, for a while, but apparently no one has showed up. But thank you so much for coming over. Thank you very much. All right. So it's been a busy schedule for you, I understand, and uh, you've been traveling all across U.S., Morocco. You will be going next. Uh, covered most of India. Rural India, I would say, and in terms of uh, across India, actually, across a India. lot of rural India, but also a lot of urban India as well. So wonderful, wonderful. And uh, okay, starting off, pehle ye batao ki journalism as 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 a whole entity. I mean, how did it start for you? You know, how did you become a journalist? How did this zeal come inside? I was always driven towards journalism. I always thought myself to be a journalist much before I actually became a journalist. Um, I believe that journalism is kind of it runs in your blood, and there is a sound that plays in your head which tells you that you have to go in that direction. There has so, been some support from your family side as well. Oh uh, well, my uh, not necessarily because. We don't have too many journalists in our family, okay. and um, journalism itself um, is a very—it's not an easy profession to be in for a woman, and you have um, very un, uh, very odd hours, and especially if you're at the news desk, you have to work till very late in the night, come back late. Oh. Oh. So it's never very very acceptable in many families. But my family, fortunately, we come from a very broad-minded family. So my parents have been very supportive of my move, and um, so yeah, the transition was almost very organic and natural. And I knew that I had to go in that direction. Now, uh, being a woman, how how uh, the uh, the odd situations are much much worse, I would say. You know, again, areas where there are you know a lot of slum-based areas, or there are. Areas that you have to cover, which might be uh, conflict uh, affected yes. in uh, you know some way or the other, and that that's a totally different angle for a woman to say that. So uh, how did, uh, how are you gritting about it? How are you pushing forward to it? I mean, uh, there's a lot of uh, support from your family and colleagues as well. But what is your personal challenge in this in this angle? I think I've always been driven in the direction where I'm impacting, bringing about change on the ground. And uh, I believe that the real journalism, that the real the impactful journalism is one where you're actually changing somebody's life or you're changing a community's um, basic existence and mm. the way they live their life. Are you, is it audible? It's, it's better now. It's okay. better. It's better. Okay. Okay. Great. So yeah, so for me, I think working in conflict zones and difficult subjects have always been um, my passion mm -hmm. because I believe that I'm not very um, driven in terms of page three journalism and um, you know superficial subjects. I'm not saying that uh, lifestyle is superficial. I mean, there is also very strong, impactful journalism that you can do there. But for me, I think it That's is not. Your uh, it's not my base. It's not my core area. I would do that as well, and I've done stories in you know in those areas mm -hmm. as well. It's not that I close my mind to any subject. I think as a journalism, as a journalist, it's your role to uh, to be as versatile with your craft as possible without closing doors. So I do that always. 
but for me the core area is really uh, human rights, religion and social justice. Okay, so that must bring you face to face with a lot of uh, um, gangs, you know, who have been trying to change this society with a certain aspect in their mind or certain groups of people who might uh, have a certain orientation that might not really align to your understanding. Yeah, I mean, when you are working in conflict zones and you're working in difficult areas, it's not easy. I mean, you will be encountering different kinds of people and uh, people who are not very happy with you doing the work that you're doing. So, uh, it's not gangs necessarily, but I would say opposition groups. Yeah. Collection of people. Yes, of course. <laughs> opposition groups which may uh, want to browbeat you into submission or not want you to do the craft that you believe that you are set, that you set out to do. But that has never really stopped me from I think uh, pushing it. Absolutely because for me that is absolutely critical for me to move on with my passion. So you're a freelance journalist. So uh, I want to understand, you know, how do you go about being a freelance journalist? I mean you have to associate yourself initially with a media house and maybe build yourself up to a certain level of experience or with the connection you might have in your industry and then become a freelance journalist. Does it work that way or is there some route where you... Uh, there isn't any route as such. I mean, you can go any route. I mean, you can take any route that you wish to take. I can talk about my personal experience. Um, for me, it was, uh, you know, when you're starting off as a journalist, personally, I believe it always helps if you are affiliated to any media house that has a significant presence in Excuse India. Excuse me, Pal, uh, could, you come, could you adjust the mic a little? Uh, I think we need to focus on the The vocals are not in clear. Or for us, for us. Coming back to your story. Yeah. So I don't. For me, I think um, uh, for for a journalist, mine in in my understanding is it helps if you are affiliated when you're starting out in your career uh, that you're so affiliated to any uh, substantially. I mean, some media house that has a substantial presence. That way you already have a foot in the door mm -hmm. and that helps you to uh, leverage and uh, you know build those connections in the media world and um, and some people just uh, continue to be affiliated to um, a media house but for me I think the path was different because after a point in my career I have over a decade's worth of experience as a journalist and after a decade, I thought that um, it would make sense, given my experience and my global travels and also my Indian travels, that I leverage this experience and that I do what I believe in doing and that I don't cater to any, any organization mm -hmm. or any person, but continue to do the work that I want to do over and above anything else. Is it the way the uh, you know, things are orienting right now that are push towards you know freelance journalism um, the way media houses are aligning themselves to certain uh, ethnicity or certain um, you know, a political party or that way has that been something uh, you know affecting you to, to take the decision that has 
may have some. Yes, there has been a lot of censorship in India in terms of how the media is functioning currently. And um, it's not easy to be a journalist given the political climate of the country. But um, for me, I think even more than that, I believe that I want to really expand my forte as a global journalist. I don't want to limit myself to being an India journalist, um, India-based journalist. Are you tired of trying of being an Indian journalist and being trying to improve things in India and then rather look at it as a whole picture? You know, have you, uh, you know, have have you made peace with that? That you know things are going to change with a very slow pace. So rather, should I, uh, you know? Expand my vision and you know just put an equal amount of efforts, uh, you know, in other areas as well. Because no matter how much you work, you know, it's it's again going to go with a similar kind of pace. I don't think so because no. I think things are very bad in other parts of the world as well. Um, it's not any different in any country in this world as of now. So I don't think that um, I'm cynical about India. I don't think so. I think there's great journalism to be done here, as there is great journalism to be done anywhere in this world. Because as a journalist, I believe uh, it does not matter where I do my journalism, as long as I do sure. my journalism. Now the censorship in media, uh, I know that has uh, really depleted our position in, in on a global platform level on the independence of media, and we have I think dropped down a few rankings uh, looking at that. Um, but again. Uh, the way things seem to be improving, though in, in from in a superficial way, I'm not sure, or uh, to the very core, that is a possibility again. But uh, journalism has a very critical role to play in that. And again, nowadays things are aligning up in a certain left or right. Uh, you know, there's no middle way. So, have you tried to look out for a middle way? Is there some way we can find a middle way towards the left and right wing parties? I mean, when you are training to be a journalist, you're always told that you have to do, be objective in your writing and your thinking and the way you present the news. And um, things have changed a lot in the world of journalism across the board, across the world. Okay. So it's very difficult to... And when you are a journalist, you're automatically... You are reading a lot, you're thinking a lot, you're talking to different people. And you become more ideologically driven and motivated. So you're bound to have certain sympathies, bound to be more sympathetic to a certain political idea mm -hmm. and political um, narrative. But at the same time, um, you have to kind of continue to tell yourself that you have to give both sides of the argument. Different chance to Yeah, but where you need to be critical, you need to be critical. And uh, you should not stop yourself from being critical, even if it means, uh, you know, things not going your way and uh, there are journalists who have lost their jobs and yeah, yeah. Uh, they've had their lives. threats that have been absolutely imposed <coughs> and uh, uh, the people have threatened them and um, even with uh, threatening them uh, to, to you know, not stop doing what they do because they would risk their life in doing what they are doing. But uh, journalists are uh, risk takers, they are meant to be risk takers and you have to take into account that you got into the into the profession not for the money, but for the passion. <coughs> Definitely. Now, 
I just just a very interesting question popped up in my mind. Now recently we have held uh, elections in Bengal, and uh, you are pretty much uh, you you basically are are coming from that region, I believe. Yes, I'm from uh, I'm from Calcutta, but yeah. I've been living in Delhi for quite a few years now. All right, fair enough. So you might have had a close watch on those. Have you been following closely? Across, I mean, across India, I've been closely following the elections. But the recent ones have been particularly aggressive, and then. People have been looking towards that area in a very, uh, if totally focused towards that region specifically. How do we win that place? Because it has been a fort uh, for a while now, to a certain allegiance, and uh, people are right now changing it as we talk about it. So, I mean, how you know does the situation you know sound to you over there? How do you uh, you know capsule it? You know, if if somebody has to understand it at the moment. The political situation in Bengal is very vitiated. Politically, um, the left has kind of been completely depleted, and it's depleted in Bengal. Its presence, um, and uh, there is a resurgence of the right. And um, Trinamool Congress, which has had a significant presence so far, has got a beating. The BJP is making more inroads into Bengal. So, and there's also a lot of communal tension. It's growing a lot. I have seen, a, you know, major part of my life, I have, I've seen community tension in in Assam as well. Uh, I used to live just just a place nearby, and I've seen so much of a political drama, so many uh, riots, band, you know, that that are called out every other day. So that is eventually affecting the economy. So, how do you take it uh, out of a political war zone to a econ, econ, you know, I'm sorry, econ, economic zone? You know that way. How do you take out of that? You know, it has been a war front for a lot of. Uh, it's for, because for of uh, yeah, the political um, violence and uh, the whole narrative is changing in everywhere across India. It's very difficult to move from the political to the economic. No, that's not. Those are two different domains. Or uh, interests of people towards the welfare. You know, how do they realize if if they are voting for just right wing parties? So how do how do they make sense of it if, if they have to choose one of them? Yeah, I mean the narrative. The, the reason why there's no the option for a left left, uh, left wing party. The, the left has been completely almost zero presence. Yeah. It's got nothing this time in the elections. And uh, those who were sympathetic to the left have very radically moved to the right. So um, they must be believing in something that the BJP is selling to them: the narrative of development and um, employment opportunities. Are you not buying that? No, I don't. <laughs> okay. All right. Now you have uh, initially started out, I think, uh, with uh, social issues. Uh, you have covered up a lot of uh, heartbreaking stories. One of the most affecting one was the one in Sonapur, I think. Sonbhadra. Sonbhadra, nearby Varanasi. And it was. Uh, I would request all the viewers and listeners to switch on to a channel. Pradeshini Singh, Weebly. Uh, Weebly. 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 And this this article about uh, a village nearby Varanasi, seventy kilometers down south. Where because of the industrial effluence and fluorides and mercury that has been flowing in, it almost looks like a wrong turn 
shoot has gone down over there. It almost looks like as if somebody is uh, shooting that movie and you might have gone to a wrong place because it, the situation is so heartbreaking, so saddening that children have, have uh, infected teeth, you know, uh, malnutrition bodies, um, you know, the limbs are just not placed right. It, it's just weird to see that. I mean, how do you experience, uh, you know, what was the experience? It was heartbreaking because, um, you know, I, I didn't even know how it would play out. I mean, I didn't even know where the story was going because I knew that there were cases of uh, um, you know, severe problems actually. So, around mercury poisoning and um, a lot of pollution in the environment. So, I knew I'm going into an area which would, you know, which would expose me to a lot of heartbreaking stories but I didn't know to what extent but uh, when I went there village after village was swept almost by an epidemic of uh, uh, complete um, uh, dehumanization of life. Those and are wrapped up bodies over there you know that's so weird seeing the ladies you know they are bent from their half mid up and they are almost crouching. Most of them I see, you know, have been crouching and leaning onto sticks to move. And then the situation is just horrible over there. So, did you, uh, you know, you, you conducted a survey and you took some, uh, uh, did some testing over there, and it, it turned out that that was the problem. That mercury fluorides were the problem. But eventually, half of the, uh, half of them who were involved in those uh, emissions were denying it, half of them accepted it. So in the end, how did it play out for you? Um, yeah, so we kind of got, uh, you know, just to scientifically prove that mercury is the reason behind this crisis in Sonbhadra. We wanted to get samples from the area, so soil, fish, water, plants. We wanted to test them in a proper laboratory back in Delhi to kind of reinforce the fact that this is not hogwash, this has a proper basis, you know, that mercury is a problem there. Uh, so the, uh, the tests proved that and uh, when we were interviewing the people, because they were all very scared, because they didn't, one is the social stigma, you know, when you are, when you have mangled uh, limbs and you can't think clearly, you can't see clearly, you can't speak clearly and uh, your family is covering up for you and families were, those who were not affected by it were covering up for their uh, other members who were affected by this mercury poison. You've seen that movie, right? Wrong turn. Have you seen that movie? No, I have not. You should. I mean, you can see a lot of visuals that might relate you to that. Because that movie eventually portrays, you know, uh, emission of these chemicals and once they get in inside you for a period of time, how the changes you from inside outside, that is so horrible. And that is a very similar scene. I, I, it just flashed into my mind because I had seen that movie a few times. I'll it check it out. It's just yeah. horrible, horrible. Any, any other you know, heartbreaking places that you might have been to um, that, that could be a better or worse than this? Yeah, I mean, this was a severe case. I mean, where how closely the environment is tied to technological industrial innovation and uh, progress that people are constantly talking about. 
but the other side of industrial progress. Uh, any other, you know, most challenging and uh, any interesting story that you can think of in one of yours? Yeah, uh, I was uh, closely, I did this story about Varanasi recently mm -hmm. and where um, uh, Prime Minister Modi is creating this, constructing this corridor to link the Vishwanath temple to the banks of the Ganges, mm -hmm. the Ghats. And uh, how um, the whole land is ravaged actually, the whole area, the stretch of land from the Lalita Ghat right up to the temple. Uh, centuries old temples and structures and um, you know, monks and monasteries have been torn down to make way for this mm -hmm. corridor. So it was heartbreaking to see how this has led to complete decimation of centuries old tradition and culture. Now people have been cast out and thrown out of their basic livelihoods and shopkeepers really? have lost their shops. Um, though you know, the other side of the argument is that these were illegal encroachments and that they should have been removed long back. But it's not a question of just illegal encroachment. It is complicated. It's very, it's very complicated. complicated. Very complicated. Yes. They've been living there for such a long time that they consider it their own property, but eventually it is not their property. So now, how do you take them out no, of that No, the thing place? is, it's not just a question of um, uh, removing people. It's also a question of Compensating, uh, compensating for if you're you know, providing, uh, taking them off a place to live, I mean, some kind of compensation. It's not also about compensation. I mean, that is also a matter of debate um, because uh, compensation hasn't been given to the extent people that, okay. thought they would get mm -hmm. and people promises that were made. But uh, also a question of um, a culture. It's uh, Varanasi was known for. Uh, pilgrimage on foot. It was not meant for rich Corridors. people coming in with their sedans and SUVs and parking their cars and just doing their prayers and moving from one spot to the other. It was. It is a tradition. It's a question of because a pilgrimage on foot ensures equality. There's no question of rich and poor. Everyone does it. So, if you are driven by faith, you do it, whether you are rich or poor. I don't know how much of a pilgrimage on foot concept exists nowadays. I mean, I highly doubt it. The, whole, uh, the idea of a pilgrimage has changed because it's no longer going through those uh, serpentine lanes and uh, closely built houses, closely aligned uh, um, temples which have been existing for centuries. It's really a question of point to point from the temple to the ghats. This point has come a bit eventually in the northern area. This this point came much earlier in the south, you know, this concept of monetizing pilgrimage and uh, it's been a concept long back that has existed in the south, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it has been happening at the even at the Tirupati temple and some other places. But Banaras is like the heart, the spiritual center of India. So when it hits Banaras, then it hits the rest of the world. The world gets to know about it. I mean, if it happens to any temple in India, of course, it's if it's an ancient temple and it's a well-known temple, it uh, kind of word gets out and it becomes a concern. How do you preserve the world's oldest city? That's the basic thing. How do you preserve it? Yes, that's, you, the, that's the role of the government. <laughs> You know, do you get it to at the same level the uh, the rest, rest of the nation is progressing? Do you keep it intact? You know, how do you suppose you know that should? You need out? to keep tradition intact. I mean, India is the spiritual center of the world. 
the Eastern world. People That's what come we to, think. People come to India just for this. People come to India to see what the West lacks. The West does not have this core spirituality that India does, which is why people from the West travel to India to see this. So if you destroy this and you try and ape the West and you try and become the West, then the West doesn't need to come here. Westerners mm -hmm. don't need to come here. If they get flashy malls and high-end cars and all that, they have ample and much more. They want to have a tough time over here. Not a tough time, <laughs> but a time that connects more with the soul and it's a more emotional okay. connection. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy that. Um, you know, tough times gives you a better insight. Absolutely, and, endurance. Uh, and, and endurance, definitely. That's, okay. Now uh, you're, you're heading out to Morocco, uh, just this next from here. Yes, uh, but I'd like to keep that. You know. Okay, for the next project. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk more about the next time. All right. What all is in your itinerary? What all places would you be traveling? I'll be traveling quite a bit. I mean, I have. Um, I have Kashmir lined up, I have Bangalore lined up, I have some other centers. Across India I have a few visit I have a few places to visit in the next couple of months. And I have some global travel also coming up later this year. Oh, okay. Now, now since this Kashmir topic has arrived, so I have to ask you a question. I won't um, debate you in, in either of the ways, whatever it is over there, but I want to understand the core that you have understood while living over there. How long have you lived there? I haven't lived in Kashmir. I mean, I've traveled, kind of traveled yeah. yeah, and lots of time I've so been there. Multiple yes, times. So, what has been your understanding of all those visits, and how do you encapsulate the situation that you have seen from from your own eyes? Kashmir is very close to my heart. I love Kashmiris. I think they are the nicest people in this world, and um, uh, it's heartbreaking. What Kashmir is going through is heartbreaking because it's really. Um, it's caught between India and Pakistan's politics, murky politics, and uh, mass human rights violations that have happened over decades. And uh, people are just pawn in the hands of political, um, you know, crossfire between the two countries. So, and I've seen that from close quarters. And I've had multiple interviews with people, I've been to different places across Kashmir, and I've documented the abuses that are happening there so yeah Kashmir is really a very in a very volatile state and uh, things are not getting any better in not getting any better so are you more towards uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, tightening things over there or do you want to loosen them out how do you want to see Kashmir them should be given its respect Kashmir should be given its um, due Absolutely, it has its identity, its own identity, and that identity should uh, that is, come through. The identity is way, has been put in way too much of focus. I mean, if we talk about identity, I mean, it has its identity has you know been in the top of news lines for a while now. So it certainly has an identity. But how many positive stories do you see coming out of Kashmir? That's the thing. That is the thing. Uh, we do see positive stories, but a lot of them are again lined up as per the interest of media houses. So, we can't really say what's really ongoing. But your uh, your your, uh, your uh, support lies, lies towards uh, the general people. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Not, not towards uh, the, the people who might be there uh, in terms of defense, you know, are they not really doing the defensive work? Is it more of an offensive work? No, it's my, my, so my heart lies with the people of Kashmir and I believe Kashmir should 
get the respect that it deserves and Kashmir should not be brutalized the way it has been brutalized. So what has... aspect of brutalization are we talking about? Could you, could you throw some light on that so that our... Yeah, I mean, the, all the, on a day-to-day -day basis, the rapes that have happened in Kashmir which have been undocumented, the mass rapes that have been discovered in Kashmir undocumented then the um, other other human rights violations such as um, you know indiscriminate killings and um, uh, enforced disappearances in Kashmir and um, uh, what else I mean rapes that have become so mass on a mass scale in Kashmir. It's so different you know talking about this sitting in a studio and uh, you know but the situation that you face over there, it's, it's much tense. How, how did you feel? What was the frenzy flowing through you, you know, when you were uh, moving across the land over there? I moved uh, through Kashmir with a very open mind. Mm -hmm. I didn't go with any close mind because that's not your role as a journalist. You have to have an open mind. So I was taking in whatever I saw and without being judgmental. And how do people talk about uh, the uh, ongoing system or progress that is ongoing so far in India. How do people see that? I mean, is this really affecting them or are they, you know, separate from it? Or are they far away from it? How is it like for people? In what sense? I don't get it. In, in the sense of, uh, you know, the way we see country as, as uh, you know, a war zone between politics and Propaganda, basically, we see a lot of propaganda, and uh, you know, it's it's a hard time for us to decide who's right, who's not. But how is it like for people over there? They don't have agendas like that. Their agenda is survival. In Kashmir. Yeah. Yes, survival, yes. respect. So, uh, is it, is the current ongoing changes in, in all across the country? You know, how is it affecting uh, you know people over there? The changes that are. Yeah, people are not feeling any better about the not political changes in India because. Section 377, which is uh, right now, it might be withdrawn in Kashmir, and uh, we don't know, I mean, how, how it is going to affect people. 377 provides special status to people in Kashmir, is that what it is? Yes, right? yes, yes, okay. yes. And so, that would be taken away. So, 70 years that that section has existed, you know, why hasn't things changed and improved? Because that's what, Kashmir is a bond in the hands of India and Pakistan. Okay. So, Kashmir has never really had an independent entity of its own because India wants a slice of Kashmir as much as Pakistan wants its own slice of Kashmir. So they claim Kashmir, but Kashmir doesn't need to be claimed. Kashmir is its own, is its own country. State. It's, it's, it's its own state. It has its own independent existence. Do you want to make it separate? As a, uh, no, I mean, I don't care. I mean, uh, it's it's a political question here. Make so it like a Swi Switzerland-based uh, concept, you know, a neutral party in between. Uh, I don't know. I mean, how the political ramifications will be and if uh, Kashmir... I mean, uh, they should come to a consensus and decide how to stop what's happening in Kashmir. And, and that's the larger question then. Um, who should Kashmir belong to or mm. how it should exist, I think. Um, because uh, because of all that has happened over decades, Kashmiri Kashmiris are tired. They need true, they need true, a true. voice. They need an end to all that is happening in Kashmir, and that end can happen in its own through formation of its own entity, or it could be mean coming to consensus. India and Pakistan coming to a consensus and deciding how 
to stop what's happening. I don't know if I could see that happening anytime soon, but I sure hope so it does. Yeah. All right. So you have traveled uh, all across India. You will be traveling uh, most of beautiful places all across the world. And so, what what are you looking towards? Uh, how are you trying to make a trajectory of your career? That's that's what I told you. I want to expand my skills and I want to grow as a global journalist. I what kind of journalist is it? Like a, a writer or somebody? Yeah, writer. Can, okay. So, I do, though I've kind of uh, I want to combine it with multimedia skills. Like we, I've done video, I've done documentary, uh, I've done a little bit of audio as well, and. Um, Photography. So I do combine these other skills along with my writing, but writing is my core focus, and I wanted to make that. Way. Now, now the way things are moving ahead in journalism, they are getting complicated again, and uh, you know we cannot understand which which uh, side is right, which side is wrong. So, do you have any recommendations um, that we can follow a certain channel, a certain? media outlet that would give us a better picture or maybe a neutral picture yeah i mean a lot of now a lot of independent outlets which are not affiliated to any um you know established in that sense media house are doing pretty well and i would definitely recommend wire i would recommend um scroll i would in india i'm talking about i would uh ntv definitely there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, which at least doesn't totally stilt and totally support the. Uh, doesn't kind of blindly lead uh, you in a direction that uh, that gives you a completely different picture of what news hmm. should be. Okay, I'll definitely keep that uh, in mind while uh, checking out the media outlets and getting my feet over there. Okay, and. Uh, uh, Apart from that, uh, a few topics I have in mind right now, I'll have to line them accordingly. Now, how much time do we have if we are not too late about it? Almost 10 to 15 minutes. Okay, okay now, um, recently you visited US, you went there with some independent work and did you cover any aspects of, of uh, so social work over there or what did you cover? No, no, it's, uh, I've got this, um, uh, I've been awarded, I'm part of this project called the Spiritual Exam Pass Project okay. and uh, it's basically um, given by the University of Southern California and Alliance and uh, funded by the Templeton Foundation in the US and they are looking to uh, profile and uh, document the lives of hundred spiritual exemplars or basically outstanding individuals who've done path-breaking work in the field of religion and spirituality and social good and development. So they've uh, got on board and they've selected 20 to 25 journalists across the world to do this. So they've selected me. And, oh, uh, I mean, yeah. is that how it happened? So which piece was uh, that, you know, which, which sparked that? It thing? wasn't a piece. It was my own uh, application actually. Okay. And yeah, so, so you're into spirituality as well, you're getting in there or are you already into that zone? I mean, my uh, now I do most of my work is now religion reporting, so that's closely tied to the project. Okay, and how do you closely identify religion and spirituality? I mean, 
sometimes the lines can get blurred, sometimes they are very distinct entities. Uh, spirituality is, uh, I mean, you could, you could be spiritual and not religious and you could believe in a greater good or a greater power, something that drives mm. the world, something that drives you every morning to wake up and do your Whatever. So I into that concept of consciousness, awareness. Yes, I believe. I believe that there should be a core element of spirituality in your life, at least a conscious, uh, conscious living rather, so that you are aware of yourself and your surroundings, and that you are not just kind of going with the flow. That you are, that you introspect and that you think about life and you think about where you, the possibilities around existence and uh, so yeah, that's spirituality but religion can, you know, religion may, would mean, you know, you are ascribing uh, to a particular faith you know, and uh, it could be very divisive or it could also be very uniting. So it depends on how it is used and, mm -hmm. but often it has been, uh, more often than not it has been misused to break people and to destroy communities and on the grounds of religion but it can also be I don't want to be cynical about it it can also be very uh, it can be a very powerful force to unite communities and groups of people and you know for instance you have um, now Eid where uh, there are a lot of women who are now organizing so, festivities yeah. and bringing so the lines of gender discrimination is kind of going down and in these areas mm. and in these groups of people so women are kind of leading the way. So where you're actually bringing in people, community, uh, people from different communities, not just from the Muslim community. So mm -hmm. it can be very uniting. But um, everybody I mean, loves I biryani. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> everyone loves biryani. So that that's the most uniting thing you can find uh, in, in in a way. But that's very uh, heartwarming that at least we can uh, decide on a. a Platter that, that, were, that we all can work out. Absolutely, yes, yes. That, that's India has always been very closely associated with fooding habits, so I think that that can play a very critical role. What do you say? I mean, fooding habits and uniting people through food, you know, that's the way mothers have channeled their love for so long. So that that's one way we can maybe make it even ground to do. Yes, food can be, food can really bring people together. Yeah, and uh, food, especially served during festivals, can really pull people together. And them come, come Definitely, we should we should uh, have monthly gatherings, you know, between by, funded by the state basically, where people of different ethnicities certainly, can, can yeah, suddenly yeah. hang out. All right, wonderful. Okay, um, we are just about to wrap up, and uh, won't take much of your time. Thank you so Thank much you for coming, much. and uh, I would love to have you on board again sometime soon if you'll be sure. give us the opportunity. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> All right, about that. <clears throat> Alright, thank you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you Hardik Tanpail for being a part of the show. And thank you Pridarshini again for coming over. It was a pleasure. Alright, we are taking off. Okay. Still showing on the face. <laughs>